no surprise, probably, to many of you if you're new this morning, first time. We've been in this series called The Bride, in which we are talking about God's church, which in the scriptures we learn one of the analogies and one of the illustrations that the scriptures use to talk about the church as the bride of Christ. And this would mean also that Christ Jesus is our groom. And so we've been talking about a bit about who her groom is, so therefore who we are as the church. We've talked about what the, what the bride believes, the structures of the bride. We've talked about uh, last week, Spencer again dug into a bit of that structure around who the church is. And this morning we're arriving at the rhythms of the church, the rhythms of the bride. If you travel across the world and you visit churches, I've had the opportunity to be in churches in Peru, in Lebanon, in Mexico, in Africa. I mean, these incredible places across our world where Christians of every language uh, are just singing to Jesus, like in different environments. What are the things that the church globally is invited to do? What do the scriptures invite the church global to do? And given our context, things can get a little bit more specific and creative, but what is the church globally invited and instructed to do? What is the bride instructed to do? How is she invited and instructed to gather and to meet? We're going to dig into that today in the scriptures. What are the basics? What are the foundational pieces? And so what I want to do is I want to bring our attention to the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and then to the Great Commission. And my hope and prayer is that you would see these texts in a new way this morning as the first time I heard these texts in this way completely changed the paradigm of my life and my understanding of what God was inviting us, his people, the bride to. So without further ado, would you go with me to Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. Verse 28 specifically, theologians determine as the cultural mandate given to us by God in and through our creation. So Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As I said, this verse 28 is the cultural mandate Human beings are created to partner with God in taking the world forward. And we're given a few ways that we are to do this. We're to be fruitful. We're to increase in number, have children, fill the earth, and subdue it. God, once again, inviting us to partner with him in taking the world forward and filling the earth, multiplying Right at the base, in the foundation of the scriptures, we read about this theology of multiplication and this innate urge in our creation that is there to multiply, to spread out, to fill. Well, then we then come to Genesis 3, the fall, rebellion, and sin puts things off track. In our hearts, things have changed. In Genesis 3 to 10, speaking of the chapters, men and women spread out, but so does sin. And then we arrive at Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9, the story of the Tower of Babel, Babel, however you want to say it. 
And we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, notice what they're doing. They're scattering. They're filling the earth. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. And what do they do? They settle there. And they said to one another, come, let us make ourselves bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Some summary, what's happening? Well, as we read, they moved east, which is a good start, right? What was the cultural mandate? Fill the earth. They land in Shinar, which is Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And this is a rich and fertile place. They're going to build a city from scratch. And so what do you need to build a city from scratch? You need a plain. You need a flat land. So what do they do? They settle. And at that point, you should hear in the background, no! You're supposed to fill. You're supposed to scatter. They use this new technology to make a name for themselves. And so what does God do? He gets them back to what they should have been doing in the first place, this gracious God. He confuses their language, and what are they forced to do? Disperse over the face of the earth. And what had happened is because of their sin, They looked inward and said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's get comfortable. Let's stay. Let's not go. Okay, let's jump ahead to the New Testament, the Great Commission. We read this, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Very familiar words to many of us. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." As I said, this is the Great Commission, but what many scholars believe is that this is Jesus' rewording of Genesis 1 and the cultural mandate. He's restating it in light of our sin, but notice he's still inviting them and commissioning them to partner with him in taking the world forward. Go into all the nations. Within the scriptures, we have four great commissions. It's really one great commission, but each of the New Testament authors and the Gospels record it. In Mark, though his ending is lost, verses 9 to 20, meaning it's not included in the original manuscripts, the earliest ones, Mark 16 does include, go into all the world and proclaim, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke's is also in Acts. Luke is part one, Acts is part two, written by the same author. And so what I'd like to do is focus on this one, and you'll see how the gospel, the scattering and the going forth of the gospel, we see it through Acts. Acts 1, 6 to 8. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. In other words, go and make disciples. And then Acts is built in the outline of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. First Jerusalem and Judea, Acts 2, 38, and then verse 40 to 41 on the screen for you. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church explodes. 3,000 people. In verse 42 to 47, we read about what this church is described as. It's a healthy, flourishing church, and it continues to grow. Acts 4, verse 32, going a bit further into Acts. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There is this incredible unity that they share with one another. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Acts 5 verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done by among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 6, verse 7. Again, this is still Jerusalem, Judea. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, let's zoom out for a moment. What's happening? We have a healthy, thriving church. Did you hear the detail? They're meeting regularly in Solomon's portico. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, is preaching. People are coming to faith. Holy Spirit is present. Nobody has any need because people are selling their stuff and providing for one another. It's unreal. It's a deeply healthy church. Yet there's a problem. They were told to fill the earth, to scatter. And what had they done? They're staying in Jerusalem. It should not then surprise us that the gospel needs to go to Samaria. Because did Jesus not say the gospel is going to go to Samaria? Well, how's it going to get to Samaria? Acts 8 verse 1, not through a method, nor means that I think any of it would wish upon ourselves. Acts 8 verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Notice this though, except the apostles. That's an important detail. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Why is the church scattered? How does the gospel get to Samaria? Persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
Well, God, why would you allow persecution to come? Maybe here he allows persecution to come so that the church would get back on the mission that he'd invited them to in the first place. Notice here as well that except the apostles, what does that mean? It meant that the congregation goes first and then the apostles followed. This is the backwards way that we now plant churches. We find a leader, we send them, and then we get the people to gather around them. Notice what happens. The congregation goes first, then the leaders follow, and the people that are persecuted and scattered, what are they doing? They go about preaching the word. They're not waiting for the expert apostles. They're like, we know what God has done in our life. Let's go tell people about it. And the result is that the gospel goes forth to Samaria. We then read about Saul in Damascus. We then read about Gentiles coming to Christ, Antioch, Paul and Barnabas. It's spread out. Paul eventually goes to the Rome. And so therefore the gospel goes to the ends of the earth because they were scattered. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are a result of this scattering. You ever stop to think about that? This wasn't down the street. The gospel has scattered and filled the earth, yet believe it or not, brothers and sisters, there are still people on this planet that have never heard the gospel. And so there's this invitation and this pattern in the scriptures of go, scatter. Then what happens is the gospel goes forward, there's growth, and people begin to gather, and they kind of feel comfortable. But then what needs to happen? Well, you need to continue to scatter, go, share, tell. What is it that holds us back? It's our sin that holds us back from continuing to scatter. We want to settle. We want to be comfortable. We don't want, we don't want people to think we're weird if we're sharing this news with them. Again, think about Jerusalem. It was a great spot to settle. It's comfortable, big. Peter's preaching. It's probably a great kids' ministry. God's in the city. Why would you want to leave? If I go to Rome, I could die. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples scatter. Now, why this invitation? Why this pattern? Another familiar passage to us. I hope I can help us see some common themes even in this text. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of what Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we read? Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What does God the Son do? He puts on human flesh and he comes to us. He leaves his Father in that sense, eternally existent with the Father. Dare I say he scatters to come and bring the gospel, the good news to us, to save us. John 1 verse 14 puts it in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice then that Jesus does not ask us to do nothing that he has not already done. He does not settle. He pursues us and he makes disciples and commands us to do the same. Notice then we see growth. 
Being found in human form, he humbled himself. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here comes the growth. Jesus dies a criminal's death as an innocent man in order to make a way for our sins to be forgiven, leading then to his resurrection, securing redemption and recon- reconciliation in our relationship relationship with God. He draws us in. And then he draws us in for worship and his glory. But then what does he do? He sends us out that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What a day that will be. And he invites us to be part of it. What does this mean for you and for me? It means that each and every single day we are faced with the decision of will we settle for our comfort? Will we scatter for discomfort, but for the glory of God and for the good of the world? You know, this doesn't necessarily mean that you need to move from where you are living, but it means that you need to see that there are thousands of people in this city who are not disciples of Jesus. Who need to see the gospel in deed and then hear the gospel in word. And he invites us to be part of it. Some practical considerations. What does this mean? The church gathers, but not at the exclusion of scattering. You know what the problem has become, and I say this about the church in the West in particular, is that the church has been defined and has come to be defined by the gathering. The hour and a half experience, or now an hour for us on a Sunday morning. But here's the problem with this thinking, is that it puts the work of the church into the hands of a few which is ultimately a gospel problem. Did Jesus only die for Sam, Spencer, and me, and those that are serving in our kids' ministry and our volunteers? What about those of you that are here today and you're not currently volunteering? Did he die for you? Yes, of course he did. So the church can't solely be about just this so that we could stand up on a Sunday morning and use our gifts in this way. What we ultimately need to do is we need to take the church to the city and out of the hands of a few paid staff. The church is the bride. It's people that God has called to himself and then sent out on mission, empowered and filled with his Holy Spirit. Think about the multiplying power of each and every single one of us living on mission with Jesus where we live, work, learn, and play. Places that our few paid staff will never touch. Yet God has placed you there to be a bearer of his kingdom and to bring the gospel. This is why we celebrate a medical professional gathering. How can you follow Jesus using your medical skills, talents? Teachers, how can you use 
your knowledge of what the kingdom of God looks like and how we're learning to follow Jesus and bring that to bear in, in, your, in your schools, in the students, in the kids that you've come to given the opportunity to love and care for. So the church gathers, but not at the exclusion of scattering. We must see ourselves as a sent church. One of the ways we scatter in our church is through missional communities. We want these to be environments where followers of Jesus are following Jesus with other followers of Jesus, which is, if we could ever get to the foundation of the church global, followers of Jesus with other followers of Jesus following Jesus. Like that's wherever I've been, you know, Peru, all of these different places, that's what they're doing. Even in small house churches that I can't tell you about or else the people would be, scared or would be fearful for their lives. Followers of Jesus with other followers of Jesus, inviting non-followers of Jesus to come become followers of Jesus with Jesus. <laughs> it's so basic. But what this means in our time and in our day is that we are then, another practical consideration is we're invited to gather and we're invited to scatter. Diverse methods are welcome. And this will depend on time, place, and culture as well as the opportunities that are before us. Like, can we just for a second recognize how blessed we are that we have the opportunity to gather like this? I think sometimes we forget about that. I know a number of years ago when I was um, fairly rebellious, not rebellious in the sense of like the sins of the world, but probably sins of my heart, believing that the only way to be the church was in a scattered model, was believing ultimately at that point that like, oh, we're done with the gathering. Shame on me. There are believers in our world that have no choice. The only way for them to meet is in scattered, privately in homes, and they would long for the opportunity to get together with other believers in a larger group to praise the name of Jesus. Yet we have that opportunity. Are we using it ultimately for God's glory? So how do we do this? We gather for reunion on Sundays, and we scatter in the week through missional communities. Where missional communities are making a commitment to one another. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Do you want to be one too? Let's live our lives together. We're going to go with Jesus. It's so basic. It's so simple. And so therefore our response, always to messages like this, I find the first place to start is recognizing the idols of our heart, our personal motivation. And part of that process is repentance. It's saying, Jesus, I repent. I need to lean away from where I lean, which is, you know that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I think we're all prone to wander to comfort. And yet he invites us to discomfort. He invites us to the scatter. So we need to repent of that comfort that eats away at us. And then we need to trust God in faith to recognize the assurance of his love, of his protection, of his grace as we go. We also need to remember that we don't impress God by going and sharing the gospel. I remember hearing a story of someone who was deeply disappointed in themselves that they hadn't shared the gospel with someone that week or lived it out in word and in deed. And so they came to their church and they came to the front at the end of a Sunday morning like, Pastor, I'm so bad. I haven't done this. And their pastor just simply, you know, through the prompting of the Spirit said, well, you know that Jesus doesn't love you any less when you don't share, and he doesn't love you anymore when you do, which just baffled this individual. It's like, what do you mean? Well, yeah, he's done everything in Christ to find you approved and accepted by God, so that's great news, isn't it? Well, yeah. 
few weeks later, someone who knew this person came up to the pastor and said, you'll never believe what happened to this person. He's sharing the gospel constantly. And in some sense, the person had been saved by the true gospel, which is that he wasn't saved by his own merit or impressions to God. He was saved by the pure gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have this incredible invitation. Sam, why don't you come up and we're going to sing this song that I pray becomes our prayer and also our proclamation. But hear what, where we read in Acts 9, verse 31. This is unbelievable. Acts 9, verse 31. As the church is scattered because of this persecution, we read this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Brothers and sisters, what would it mean for you this week to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit?